fossil fans and dino lovers. Welcome to the Paleo Podcast, brought to you by the Cranbrook Institute of Science and Podcast Nation. Here are your hosts, Tim and Dr. Andrew. Hey, Tim, how's it going today? Oh, it's pretty good, Andrew. You know, I'm pretty excited because today's guest is somebody whose name I've been hearing throughout Cranbrook for as long as I've started there. Yeah, yeah. So our guest today is John Hankla, and John is an adjunct curator at Cranbrook Institute of Science, which means we really wanted him to contribute to our overall museum effort, and he was happy to do it. So John has a really interesting background, which might not be immediately obvious how it relates to paleontology, because he did a lot of studying on prairie ants, and I'm going to let him tell a little bit more about that. But in addition to his research expertise, John has an extensive personal collection of cast dinosaur skeletons that have been featured at our museum on several occasions and also in a couple other really cool places. So, John, can you tell us a bit about yourself and what inspired you to get into the field of paleontology? I have always been excited about paleontology. Um, I think early on, my uh, my initial interest was like a lot of kids just learning about sort of these ancient worlds. And um, there was an element of sort of treasure hunting uh, to it. I love picking up shells on the beach. I loved sort of looking for uh, Native American artifacts on our family's farm. And I got a chance when I was about nine years old to go visit a ranch in Wyoming where they had dinosaur bones, you know, on the surface of, of the ranch. And uh, so there was an element of treasure hunting, uh, which I think every kid and a lot of adults can relate to. Just it's really fun to find things that no one's found before. And, but quickly, I think my interest sort of pivoted uh, when I started discovering things uh, that I had questions about. I mean, the questions that I had on this ranch, um, I was a nine-year-old kid walking around with my dad picking stuff up. But once it was sort of in my hand, it's like uh, my, my brain quickly raced to where did this come from? What is the story behind it? What does it mean? Um, those kind of questions. So from a very early age, I think from a very organic sort of um, way, I got into the field of sort of paleoecology and sort of understanding like the the ancient stories that these fossils have to tell and sort of the um, the full story was what I was interested in as a kid. Uh, I, I remember showing a bone that I found. It was an Edmontosaurus uh, radius. That's an arm bone. Uh, and it was a, a, quite a small one. It was from like a juvenile dinosaur. Um, and, and that was sort of the sum of what our rancher friends could tell me about it. And I was like, but what was it doing here? Who, where was his parents? Mm -hmm. Where were like, would, <laughs> you know, is it warm blooded or cold blooded? Did it lay eggs? All these, you know, who, who else was on the scene with it? Who were its friends? Um, those are the questions that as a nine-year-old kid, I think are very natural. Yeah, like a, yeah. a, a young person tends to, yeah, get really, um, interested in, in the casting characters. And, and it, it so it quickly went from being a, a treasure hunting kind of, uh, interest into being more of like a, almost a fantasy world building kind of thing. The way some kids get into, um, you know, Lord of the Rings or, <laughs> or different sort of fantasy worlds. It was like, this is, this has got all of the fun of the fantasy world building thing, but also, uh, it's real. I mean, I'm, uh, these people that I'm, I look up to are telling me this is very real stuff. It's just, um, there's, a, there's an imaginative intellect that really, I think when you're a kid, it just grabs you. So, yeah, absolutely. So that's, 
Yeah. yeah, that's kind of my story at the beginning of it, really. And the rest of it's just sort of boring. Just kept taking more and more science <laughs> classes and getting more details for my for my little still life picture I was painting. Yeah. And, you know, that's something we've been trying to drive home with this podcast is just how, like, accessible paleontology is. You know, like a lot of fields of science, like if you wanted to go be a chemist, you might need to, you know, buy some chemicals and have a laboratory. But, like, if you want to get into paleontology, you just need to go outside and start looking around, you know. Yeah, and that's, that's it. Or inside. I mean, there's so much to do in the lab and in the in museum collections. You can volunteer. But I, I totally know what you mean. It yeah. is a very approachable science for anyone who has that sort of imaginative intellect and a little bit of an inquisitive nature. There is a lot of things to pick at and probe at and, <laughs> yeah. and question and ponder. Yeah, that is my favorite part of paleontology, too. Like, you know, the fossils are like ancient artifacts, essentially, mm -hmm. but they are originally an animal. And mm -hmm. it's learning that these aren't fictional creatures, that they really are animals is what's the most exciting thing to me. Yeah. And the, the whole idea that the sort of ancient ecology is the focus of our research, but that the data is hidden in the geology. And I guess I was in you know, later in, in high school courses, I was sort of introduced to just the field of geology. And then I, when I got to undergrad, I went to school um, at the University of the South down in Tennessee, which has a phenomenal sort of natural resources and geology program. And I just poured myself way into the geology side. Because I think as, as a young person, like that ecology side of it was really exciting to me. Um, I grew up in the 90s, um, you know, late 80s, early 90s when ecology was sort of a buzzword and people were starting to think about ecosystems and environmental protections and stuff like that. So I kind of had been steeped in that world. But then once I started to, to learn how to read rocks and how to, how to find the, the data that we need and, and how to ask the kind of, or how to answer the kind of questions that I've been asking for years. Yeah. That's just, that's a magical thing to me to, to think about how, you know, our field is, is all of these exciting ancient worlds that we can only know about by, like interpreting another field of science mm -hmm, and, and the mm -hmm. geology part of it. Yeah, I mean, you know, my degree is in geology as well, but like I think science used to be a lot more segmented. You know, it was you would paleontology used to be you would find the fossil, you'd dig it up and you would say, you know, here's what we think this looked like, and maybe that was it for a while, but now like you said, we are reconstructing climates and ecosystems and doing just a whole bunch of stuff with it. So it's it's really kind of cool how complex and interdisciplinary science is these days. And that seems to be clipping along at a, at a rate that it's almost it's I, I feel like at the age of 41 already kind of washed up in that department. And some of these kids that are, you know, just so fluent in the language of biogeochemistry and stuff like that. that yeah, yeah. It's like to me and my old old man brain, it's still kind of like segmented <laughs> into those old disciplines, but they're almost obsolete at this point. Or at least they're just more of components to these new disciplines that are going to be at the forefront. Mm -hmm. So speaking of combining things together, um, from what I've heard, your research has combined fossil hunting and modern ant nests. So how exactly do those two things go together? Yeah, well, like I said, I, I've always been fascinated by ecology. Just to sort of fill you in, there are uh, a genus of, of ants that sort of make their living. The thing that they do best is um, harvesting tiny little grains of soil and making nests out of them. And um, so they're, they're constantly sort of mining the surface of the ground and piling them up. And they're distributed across the West. We have our own species here in the interior Western part of the United States um, called Poganomirnex occidentalis. Uh, but that's just a big word for the Western harvester ant. Uh, yeah, it's and, much easier. <laughs> yeah, I that's a little that bit yeah, <laughs> easier. Um, 
But all of the ants in that genus, the Pocono Miramax, have these little beards that they grow. It's too cool. And they use their <laughs> beards and their little tiny mandibles to scoop up grains that are quite small by our standards. They fit in, you know, we're talking um, a, a large one would be like two millimeters. Um, but to the ant, it's quite big. I mean, these are tiny little ants and they're using this sort of like cool morphology um, and this really crazy stiff beard, these little hairs that they grow to scoop up grains. And then they pile them up where they can collect sun to help warm up their nest, where they can provide a fortress for this giant factory they have underground where they're doing all their ant business of raising broods and collecting uh, seeds. The, the ant goes by the name Western harvester ant because they do in fact harvest seeds in that same sort of grain size uh, and store them underground uh, as a food source. Um, but anyway, I got it. I got interested in them because as a little kid, I was told by some ranchers that that is a very cool place to go looking for tiny little fossils. And um, I learned at a very early age that sitting, if you're interested in paleoecology and trying to build out and flesh out the sort of scene that these big dinosaurs were walking around in, you can find a lot of data, a lot of, of diverse fossils on the surface of a nest. They might be very small and fragmentary remains. You might find just a pile of teeth, but the teeth would represent you know, multiple different species of dinosaurs and lizards and snakes and um, birds and uh, mammals, even things that lived uh, in the shadow of these big dinosaurs and help us sort of fill out that paleoecological scene that I'm so interested in. So at an early age, someone turned me on to the notion that these ants were already collecting these fossils and piled them, piling them up in these little um, piles. And I just thought that was so cool. It's wild. <laughs> and I started digging, there was one particular ant nest that I sort of got to know I've, I've since <laughs> learned that an ant nest can live uh, to be about 50 years. The wow. queen can live that long. Most individual ants live about a few hours to a day oh, um, wow. that are doing this work, the brave work of going out in the, you know, the prairie, so the surface of the earth where it's sort of unsafe to be an ant mm -hmm. and uh, collecting these, these stones and seeds for them to make nests out of and to eat. Um, but that an individual ant nest can live to be 50 years old. So there are nests that I found when I was like, you know, nine and 10 years old as a kid that I still go back and visit and still find fossils. Oh, on wow. top of. And uh, when I got to grad school, you know, it's all about the questions when you're trying to be a student and trying to figure out what's a good question from something that I can sort of add my two cents to and dig into and really do a lot of research on. And I realized there, there was a lot of mentions. In fact, the first mention of people in that County finding dinosaur fossils on an ant nest was 18, uh, 1883. Wow. Uh, and this is like the John Bell Hatcher, uh, Yale expedition. And they were, they were using the ants back then. Um, so just right when paleontology was sort of in its infancy in the West, we were already, uh, using this resource, but in, in the time since, even though thousands and thousands of fossils have been collected this way, not many people were paying attention to the ants and sort of explaining, you know, again, it was sort of a childlike question, but like, why are they doing that? Like, what's up with that behavior? Um, <laughs> very neat that we can do that, but are there things that we can learn about ants by studying the ants? Are there things that we can uh, learn that might help us interpret these fossils better? For instance, um, I'm, I was, have always been very fascinated with the last dinosaurs in North America, the ones that lived just before what we mm -hmm. call the KPZ boundary mm -hmm. um, at the extinction event. And um, my question was, if I start finding, if the ants have already collected all these fossils and we're in this sort of zone where the KT boundary, you know, this sort of couple millimeter thick layer uh, just runs across a bluff. Are the ants mixing the fossils from the Paleocene and the Cretaceous? And oh, yeah. 
how do we sort that kind of stuff up? And yeah. to answer that question, I had to sort of dig into some like, okay, well, what are the ants doing? Um, and then once I started studying ants, um, I realized quickly that they were equally as fascinating as dinosaurs <laughs> could have done an entire, another round of research just on the ants alone. But, right, right. Yeah. Um, so I came up with some experiments that I could use to sort of test some of the questions that I didn't see answers for in the literature. I did a pretty extensive literature review to, they're, these ants um, are considered pests in a lot of Western states because they kind of make holes in the ground for where um, ranchers can, you know, have problems or they get into houses and stuff like Classic. that. So, mm -hmm. it's, yeah, there's a lot of literature on how to eradicate these guys, but um, <laughs> very little literature on on the benefit that they that they provide, especially to us paleontologists. Yeah. Huh. It's so funny to me that these ants have no idea yeah. that what they're doing is just so important to, to people like you, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's interesting. And what's and it's just as an aside, um, I ran across literature that shows that in like the gym mines in, in South America, so like in Brazil and um, and Colombia and places where they find like emeralds and, and tourmalines and these cool crystals that <clears throat> there's a genus of ant down there that piles, uh, that that's a really good resource for people who collect those things. Um, I ran across people in sort of the Mojave desert all the way over here to the Sonoran sort of areas where they do a lot of anthropological research and they find sort of, uh, indigenous, uh, beads and like little pieces of their artworks and, um, maps, you know, flint from, huh. uh, arrowheads and points. So this is a, this is sort of a ubiquitous behavior of this genus of ant that goes all up and down the new world. Yeah. Uh, and and I was wondering, you know, one of my first questions was, do, do they know what they're doing? Is there a reason them? that they are, you know, <laughs> it seems the, the quick answer is their little mandibles uh, can only pick up uh, a grain that's so big. They don't, they're not strong enough to pick up anything that's bigger than like, say, two millimeters. Uh, but they also pick up <laughs> tiny stuff because it just falls right out of the whole uh, okay. the door they have. So the, it's a, it's a very specific grain size that they are. Yeah. sorting you know and, and what i learned in geology school about uh, grain sorting is there's a few things that can do it wind and water and and animals mm -hmm. and so these little animals are um are effectively sorting if, if there are more than 40 ant nests on an acre of land they are moving over 600 pounds of that sized uh grain and in a lot of outcrops that can be a hundred percent of the sort of standing crop of that size grain, if that makes any sense. Yeah, so wow. everything that fits into that size class is getting moved to a pile. Yeah. Uh, and if something weathers its way out in that size class, they are quick to get on it because they are very, you, you may know this about ants, they are very busy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> work around the clock. Yeah. Um, These... But to, to your point about whether they know what they're doing, um, I eventually came across some, some, uh, literature from a gal, Deb Gordon, who is a professor out at Stanford. And she suggested that maybe they do use um, fossil bone and modern bones of vertebrates on the landscape that they find. And that they disproportionately choose to put those on their nests because they are a really good sort of um, sink for their mm -hmm. uh, hydrocarbon pheromones that they use to smell their way home in high windy environments. Ah, interesting. Yeah. These little... So they may they may in fact know what they're doing, and they may maybe not um, in the same quest to sort of uh, you know understand how the world was made or to to write a new chapter in paleontology. But they certainly are. It seems sort of selective in picking these things out. Right. Um, yeah. They sound like little bearded Viking ants. <laughs> <There you go. laughs> 
So uh, I understand you have done extensive work on skeletal casts of various fossils. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about your collection and what goes into making a cast? Ooh. Oh, sure. Yeah, that's another um, of my varied interests, but it is something that <laughs> um, I, <laughs> I'm i painting myself as a bit of a nerd. I, I like the fantasy world building of the paleoecology, and I also right. like model building as a kid. I built, like, you know, uh, model cars and model, model airplanes. And, um, yeah. You don't need to worry I about being out. a nerd here. Don't worry yeah, about I, it. I, I okay. 3D print good dino company, bones myself. Like. So, <laughs> Yep, yep, good company. <laughs> well, good. I mean, us nerds have to stick together, I think. Uh, <laughs> but, yeah, I, I love model building. And then so I sort of came across um, the whole industry of fossil cast reproduction sort of creation and um, and sort of got, got excited about that as, as a young kid when I found out that I could get sort of like the parts to a dinosaur to sort of build and play with and um, and and pose in the positions that I thought were correct. Mm-hmm. And so when it took me a while to realize that there was a, there's a real industry for that and that scientists really rely heavily on mold makers. And this is one of those places, I think Cranbrook is a great place for artistic minds and science minds to sort of mingle and cross pollinate. Um, it's always, this been one of my favorite things about working with CIS, but um, the molding and casting world is definitely one of those arenas where uh, it takes an artistic mind and an artistic skill set to figure out how do we make a perfectly uh, identical copy of this that's not so fragile that we can ship it around the world to researchers and show other people um, in distant locations. Um, we can bring this into school rooms. We can, you know, a cast is something that is um, renewable. It's something you can make multiple copies of and a original fossil from the late Cretaceous is a one of a kind um, priceless object. So, yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I kind of, I just from the model building angle as a young person, I got excited about these sort of models of dinosaurs. Um, and then I met a really good mold maker, uh, who was an artist who had a, had a sort of passion for dinosaurs as well. And mm-hmm. one of those really clever creative minds that you guys are used to seeing up there at Cranbrook that <laughs> have a little bit of both sides of the, uh, a lot of both actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this guy is Rob Gaston and he's based out here in Colorado. Um, I got to know him just because he would go to these sort of trade shows that I would show up at and I would tug on his sleeve and ask him to show me what new models he was working on. And he would always get contracted by major museums when they would find a new dinosaur, they would need a copy made and they would mm-hmm. contract him because he, you know, quickly established himself as like one of the best in the industry to take care of a priceless fossil through the mold building process. Right. But essentially we're just taking a real fossil and making a silicone rubber mold around it, which is sort of like a little, um, a way, like a, like a footprint or a thumbprint. You, you make a, a mold of something and then you take, um, some sort of material that can fill the mold Mm -hmm. and make a cast replica copy so that you can give, put the bone back into a research collection in perpetuity where it can be taken care of. And then you can send these copies around. Yeah. Um, we've made copies of dinosaur bones out of everything from jello to chocolate to <laughs> oh, plastic wow. to metal. I didn't you know, know that actually. Yeah. <laughs> it's a wedding cake yeah, idea. Did, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, really. A middle school uh, project where we made a dinosaur out of chocolate and that was a lot of fun with the kids, not a huge hit with the parents when we sent them home with sort of <laughs> chocolate <laughs> dinosaur bones. Yeah. yeah. Them in the car. yeah. Um, at, we learned our lesson after that one project. I, I, I love doing science outreach and research. That's kind of how I got involved with CIS and working with Cranbrook. But um, my favorite thing to do is ask kids what they want to do or how, what, like 
to pick their brains about fun projects. And that's where the chocolate thing came from. Right. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. (laughs) I quickly learned my lesson though. And I asked the parents like, what would be better? And they said, well, why don't you make them out of soap? Cause that would, you know, leave the kids a little cleaner for the end of the day, (laughs) the other way around. And so we started doing, um, soap dinosaurs and that was really fun. Kids can take the bones home with them and throw it in the shower and play with it for a while until it all melts in the goo. Yeah, you know, I've I've seen in the museum scene, sometimes people are like, oh, man, it's a cast. But like what they yeah. don't realize is, first of all, a lot of times the real bones themselves are being studied someplace or in order to safely hang them up, you have to kind of, you know, drill into them or otherwise, you know, destroy them in a way that we, we might not want to do. But, you know, making these casts on, on you know, you can send them so many places and more mm-hmm. and more people can witness a dinosaur and instead of being, you know, located to only one place that they have to go visit. So it's, it's really cool to see that. Totally. And when you're working with phenomenal sort of top-notch artist types uh, using like sort of state-of-the-art molding technology, the, the level of detail we can get, um, I mean, if we don't wash our hands really well before we handle the dinosaur bone that we're molding, uh, we'll end up with like little tiny fingerprints on the cast. Like that's oh, wow. how good, that's <laughs> the kind of resolution we get. So when a researcher needs to measure every single like millimeter sized denticle on the inside of a Tyrannosaurus tooth to just mm-hmm. sort of figure out who it's related to or to do some research. They can use these cast copies just like the real thing. And sometimes, you know, um, it's, it's more functional than the real thing because it doesn't have to be sort of handled with kid gloves. You can sort yeah. of pass this thing around the room. Yeah. It's um, a game changer. So, so yeah, as a, basically as a kid, I started building models. And if you're a collector of any kind, you know how quickly you can end up with, you know, a pile of things that you collect and you're mm. moving on to the next one oh, and the yeah. next one. And, yep. I, um, I 3D print dinosaur bones at home and that's all my living room <laughs> is now is just dinosaur skulls everywhere. Yep. So oh, uh, on the uh, on the topic of your casts, uh, the listeners may be more familiar with your casts than they think because uh, I it's my understanding that some of your skeletal casts were featured in one of the Jurassic Park films. Mm-hmm. How did that come about? Totally. Well, we ended up with a, like I said, I, I, I ended up with a, a small collection that filled up my bedroom and then my living room. And then I ended up renting a furniture warehouse to store all these casts. In. And <laughs> um, there aren't that many people that have that sort you know, it's just a matter of how much time I spent collecting those things. So I have like 20 years worth of dinosaurs, the way I measure it, instead mm-hmm. of like, how many skeletons do you have? <laughs> I, um, I started early and I collected these things. So um, in addition to loaning them to museums for shows. Like we did three different sort of gallery shows at the Cranbrook. Uh-huh. Um, we did, um, let's see in 2010, I did my first one. I was still in grad school and I worked with John Zawiski on a show he called uh, dinosaurs land, sea and air. And we put about 40 skeletons in the big traveling hall that, from my collection. And that was super fun. Um, and we did a couple more. We did one in 2013 called dinosaurs, the lost world. And another one in 2019 called doom of the dinosaurs. Um, but in addition to doing, um, you know, whenever the phone rings and someone needs a dinosaur, I'm so happy to jump and say, yeah, let's play with these things. Let's set them up. It's like, it's like a kid playing with his dinosaurs in the bathtub or something. Yeah. Um, so, um, but sometimes it's not museums that call. Sometimes other people, there are, um, we do sort of TV commercials sometimes. If you see a dinosaur in the background, that's oftentimes one of mine. Oh, okay. um, and then I was really excited. I was like, um, my, my wife and I had just moved into a small apartment in, in Denver, Colorado. And I was sort of working. And when I first got sort of the research associate position at that museum and the phone rang and I remember sort of like holding the phone down and putting my hand over the microphone and saying, babe, 
I think this is Jurassic Park. <laughs> like, <laughs> Love when it happens. They, they didn't show, they didn't tell me that it was Jurassic Park. Cause of course, when these movies are being made, there's a lot of secrets involved. Yeah. Oh like, yeah. Yeah. Really big time about it. But I kind of just picked up on when, when someone calls you and says, Hey, we need to fill a 10,000 square foot room in London with two train cars full of dinosaurs. Mm-hmm. Um, you're like, okay, who are you? Like, yeah, <laughs> there yeah. aren't that many people that have the resources <laughs> to do that. And then uh, they said, well, it's for a little film that we're working on. Little. I'm like, oh, a little film. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but that was definitely one of the highlights of my career. My um, my brother-in-law um, pretended to be my assistant so that he could get a ticket to London <laughs> with me. And we, <laughs> we went over there and we went um, met up with some paleontology colleagues over there and had a blast. Nice. And I set up these uh, skeletons on stage with some of the talent and stuff, just seeing some of the actors and some of the, just on a blockbuster movie like that. Mm-hmm. Um, we're, we are quite used to being like one of the coolest things in the room when you do a show <laughs> yeah. and, you know, mm-hmm. and you walk <laughs> that scene and you're like, wow, we are not, we're not even nearly the coolest people in this room. <laughs> There's so much talent and so much money being spent on really talented um, just fabricators. And I mean, talk about molding and casting their lab. They, they didn't have resource. They didn't have access to the fossils to cast, but once we sort of showed them our game and how we do what we do, they quickly started teaching us like molding and casting practices that were, it was just really neat to sort of be in that sort of, again, that cross pollination of artists and scientists and engineers all kind of working together on a project. Yeah, absolutely. So what you're saying is, is if our hobbies get out of control enough, we will end up on Jurassic Park. (laughs) (laughs) I think so. That's, I mean, that is follow your dreams, kids. Yeah. Yeah. It's the end game. That's right. (laughs) You never know who's going to call. Well, John, this was, this was so fascinating. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing all about your life and your, your casting. And I mean, this is such a unique perspective into this side of paleontology. And yeah, I mean, the bearded, paleontologist ants sounds made up <laughs> but we believe you <laughs> i love it well thanks guys for everything that you're doing and uh yeah thanks to cranbrook for being one of the coolest places to foster that kind of those kind of passions and yeah. those kind of artistic and scientific sort of ideas absolutely and thanks for being a part of that it's great to talk to you yep cool yeah cool is an understatement i don't know about you tim but i think i'm gonna go follow around some ants outside and see if i can find any fossils yeah, I'm going to start leaving food around my apartment now as well. <laughs> All right, well, everybody, thanks so much for listening, and we'll catch you in the next episode. The Paleo Podcast is produced by the Cranbrook Institute of Science and Podcast Nation. Thanks for listening. <laughs>